Well, for the first time in a long time, actually I went back to look, it's been since lesson number 85, which was entitled On the Road to Rejection. For the first time in a long time, we are back into one of the other gospel accounts other than... John. Ever since we started back in September, we've been in the Gospel of John. Now with today's lesson, which contains the account of the Lord sending out 70 disciples, it is found in the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to be back in Luke chapter 10. Now I don't know if the 70 disciples that the Lord sent out in Luke chapter 10, and by the way, Luke is the only one who tells us about the sending of the 70 They went out in pairs on a mission trip, and we'll be talking about that. Luke is the only one to record that for us. We would not know about it if it was only left up to Matthew, Mark, and and John. And I don't know if the 70 disciples that the Lord sent out at this point in time included the 12 apostles. Now, I think in our lesson last time, but I I think I might have alluded to the fact that the 70 disciples included the 12, but I have come to think otherwise since that. So I think the 70 were separate from the 12. 12 apostles, 70 disciples. And the reason for that, if you look, look, look at look, 10.1, you will see that it says, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also. I think that's other 70 also apart from the 12 he already had. Now, now last time that we were in Luke, if you remember, it was quite a while ago, and the Lord was working his way toward Jerusalem. If you look at Luke 9, verse 51, it says that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The time was at hand. He knew it was time to leave Galilee and start his road to rejection. He knew that he must suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the religious rulers and that he would be crucified and, of course, that he would resurrect on the third day. But it was time to go to Jerusalem. And on his way, do you remember, he passed through Samaria. He wasn't like a lot of the other Jews who would go all the way around Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. He went right through Samaria. And en route, he sent some disciples ahead to a certain village to ask if they could spend the night there. And the Samaritans said no. And remember, two of the apostles, James and John, were hot to trot about that rejection, and they wanted to make the whole town into crispy critters, which the Lord had to admonish them about. And you can read about that in the last few verses there. Let's see, what verses would it be? 53 and 54. And then, as he's still en route down to Jerusalem, he encountered some would-be, three would-be disciples. That's in verses 57 to 62. And in a lesson entitled Barriers to Commitment, we discussed the level of commitment that the Lord is looking for in those who would be his disciples. He looks for those who are willing to follow him regardless at the per, you know, to the, of the personal cost to themselves. Now, we do not know if the man who told the Lord he would follow him withers Soever he went, that was in verse 57, even when he was told by the Lord that he um, might have to give up his creature comforts, that he might have not have a nice warm bed to, to lay himself down in at night, 
So we don't know if this man who said he would go whithersoever the Lord uh, went, if he was willing to give up his creature comforts or not. And we don't know if the man who said he would follow the Lord, but first he had to go and bury his father. That was in verse 59. And the problem was that his father wasn't yet dead. He, wanted, he didn't want to lose his uh, potential future inheritance from his father. We don't know if that man was willing to follow the Lord regardless. And we don't know if the man who said he would follow the Lord, but first he had to go and bid farewell to his family in verse 61. We don't know if any of these three would-be disciples were willing to forfeit their future inheritance or make the needful break with their family or give up their creature comforts or not. I hope, for their benefit, I hope that they were willing to do that and that they did indeed become some of these 70 disciples. It's possible that they did. Anyway, what we do know is that along his itinerant journeys, uh, the Lord Jesus did pick up a man here and a man there who was willing to follow him as his disciple. And um, now, some five to six months before his crucifixion, see, we're only, we're only like half a year away from his crucifixion, even though you and I have another, at least another four years in our life of Christ study. <clears throat> Still, we're only six months away from his crucifixion. So six months out from his crucifixion, he sent these 70 disciples out to be witnesses for him. Now, the Apostle Peter, if you'll move over, I know we haven't even read Luke 10 yet, but keep your finger there. And if you go over to Acts 1 and look at verse 21, the Apostle Peter was very likely speaking of this very group of disciples when he wrote about men, Acts 1, 21, men who had accompanied with them, meaning with the apostles, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among them. I think he was talking about these 70, plus maybe a few more, and, and, and probably, uh, you know, there were a group of women who followed the Lord everywhere also and ministered to the Lord and his apostles. Well, these were men who heard the voice of the Good Shepherd and were willing to follow him, men such as the former blind beggar who we had just learned about in John chapter 9, right? The man who had been born blind and was um, got his sight from the Lord and then he was excommunicated. He had nowhere else to go. And don't you know that the Lord took him on as one of his disciples? I firmly believe that he was one of these 70. So these men, along with the 12, the 12 apostles, Minus Judas Iscariot, so you have to take 70 disciples, add the 12 apostles, and you get what? 70, 82. Subtract one, who would that be? Judas Iscariot, so you get 81. That, those 81, and then along with a group of women, we don't know how many women there were, but these were part of the 120 who gathered together uh, in the upper room to pray and, um, and wait in the upper room after the, the Lord's ascension. And that you can read about in Acts 1.15. It says, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. The number of names together were about 120. Now, we do not know the names of these 70 disciples other than the names of two of them. We do know the names of two of them. But we don't know the names of the rest of them. But who does? 
The Lord does. He knows their names, and we're going to find out, actually, their names are written in heaven. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, of course, he knows their name. You know, we just talked about the good shepherd. His true sheep know his voice, and he calls them by name. He knows their name. And the two we do know the names of are, and if for this you can look at Acts one You're still in Acts 1, right? The names of two of them would be, number one, Joseph, who was also called Barsabbas, which means he was the son of a man named Sabbas. So Joseph, the son of Sabbas, who was surnamed Justice. I don't know where the Justice comes from. Maybe that was his middle name or his nickname or something. But So one of them was named Joseph, and the other one was who? Matthias, And it was from these two disciples that the other, the apostles that selected one of them to be the replacement for Judas Iscariot. So we do know the names of two of the 70. And, you know, as I always like to do, you can speculate, you can use your own creative imagination about maybe who some of these, the other disciples were included in the 70. Maybe one of them was the widow's son of name. I mean, after all, he had been raised from the dead. Wouldn't, if you were him, wouldn't you give the rest of your life to Jesus Christ and to follow him as one of your, one of his disciples? Maybe, um, maybe a leper who had been cleansed was one of his disciples. Maybe a, a man who had been um, delivered from a demonia. I mean, you can just use your imaginations to think who, and, and we'll find out when we get to heaven who these 70 were. All right, Luke 10 is going to be another one of those chapters where we're going to be camped out for a while, at least, and you all say, so what else is new? <laughs> we're not starting out the new year really too new, but we'll be here at least three weeks. And it's interesting to notice that the chapter really neatly, very neatly divides into three sections. We have today's lesson, which is from verse 1 to 24. So after verse 24, if you want to put a little line after that verse, I don't know if you don't like writing in your Bibles, you don't have to. But that's the first section, and that's where we're going to be talking about the Lord's sending out of the 70 disciples. And then the next section is found from verse 25 to the end of verse 37. And that's where we're going to be discussing, Lord willing, next week, the Lord's very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And then the third section is found in verses 38 to 42. And there we're going to have a very interesting comparative character clip of two very well-known and beloved sisters. And who would they be? Yes, you all know them, Martha and Mary. Now, in having inspired Luke to record these three events together sequentially. Now, it doesn't mean that these three events occurred chronologically. You're all finding that out, right, as we're doing our Life of Christ study chronologically. Sometimes we have to jump back over to John or into another one of the Gospel accounts to find out how everything went chronologically. But the Holy Spirit in having inspired Luke to record these three particular events, the sending of the 70, the Good Samaritan parable, and the little story about Martha and Mary, he, I think, was do doing that purposely so as to show us something very interesting. He, the Spirit, gives us a marvelous illustration of the threefold ministry of believers. 
the true sheep of God. You see, we, just as the 70 disciples, you and I are to go out into the harvest field as the Lord's representatives. We are to be his messengers and his laborers out in the harvest field of the world. And as we go about as his ambassadors in the harvest field, we are to be very neighborly like the Good Samaritan to anyone we encounter who has a need that we can meet. And most important of all, as we learn from our, we're going to learn from our look at working Martha and worshipful Mary. That's going to be an interesting study, isn't it, Mary? (laughs) Because we're all going to do a little self-examination of ourselves. Obviously, if it's a self-examination, we're going to see what are we, which one are we? Which one can we most identify with? Are we a workaholic like Martha? encumbered about by many things in this world or are we more like Mary who chose that better part didn't she and she she worshiped at the feet of the Lord Jesus and she she wanted to learn of him I think a lot of you are a mixture of both I know I am and I'm glad that you're all here today because that does show me and the Lord that we really are part Mary at least because here we are wanting to learn from from the Lord Lord and about the Lord but um, If we don't have our time of devotion with Christ, we are going to be poor ambassadors for him. We're going to be poor disciples. We're going to be poor neighbors and uh, poor servants for him, aren't we? If we do not spend time in worship at his feet, learning of him and learning from him. So in our three-lesson look at Luke, lesson look at Luke, that's hard to say. Say that three times in a row. (laughs) we're going to find as sheep of the good shepherd that our highest and our greatest privilege is to do the will of God whether we are as his ambassadors you know like the 70 out in the harvest field or whether we're on the highway as neighbors imitating the Lord as the good Samaritan or whether we are in the home as worshipers of the Lord, learning from the Lord as Mary did and as Martha learned to do. So you could really neatly divide Luke chapter 10 into three sections. You can call that first section out in the harvest field, the second section out on the highway, and the third third section in the home. Harvest, field, highway, and home, where we need to be his ambassadors in every way. All right, now before we actually get into the scripture text itself, you say, when are we ever going to read the scripture? We're getting there. But before we get into it, let me um, quickly mention two other things. First of all, make sure that you understand that the Lord sending out of the 70 here in Luke 10 is not one and the same incident as his first sending out of the 12. Now, some Bible commentators and many liberals will say that this is one and the same incident and therefore conclude that the Bible contains mistakes because there are some differences in these two. And so they say, well, look, this was a mistake. Now, there's a lot of people out there, if they don't look at the scripture as being divinely inspired and then therefore trying to work it out and say, look, you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't, uh, isn't consistent and it looks like there's problems i know god wrote this so i've got to figure out what what the situation is you know and that's how i look at it there must be something i'm not seeing right and and the truth is these were two separate incidents incidents 
incidents. <laughs> but a, a liberal or someone who doesn't believe in the divine inspiration of scripture will just say, oh, well, this is a mistake. Like, there's two cleansings of the temples. Now, we can look at this and say, yes, this is definitely, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the two when he sent out the 12 back in Matthew 10. That's easy to remember. He sent out the 12 in Matthew 10. He sent out the 70 in Luke 10. It was very convenient for us that the chapters work like that. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of similarities, but there are some significant differences as well. And probably the main difference is that the first sending out was just of the Lord's 12 apostles. And you can read about it, as I said, in, in Matthew 10. And they are specifically listed for us by name. Each and every one of those 12 is listed for us. We are given their names. Whereas the second recorded commission was to how many? 70, not 12, 70 unnamed, not apostles, but disciples. Furthermore, as we will see, some of the instructions that the Lord gave to the 70 are different from what he gave to the 12, and the timing of the two incidents is different. You know, the first one was sometime during the Lord's second year of public ministry, whereas this one, as I just told you, is only some five or six months short of the Lord's crucifixion. So this is at the very end of his ministry. And the 12 apostles, if you remember, were sent throughout cities of Galilee, which is the northern province of Israel, whereas these 70 disciples were sent in the Transjordan, Perean area, two completely different areas. So are you convinced they're two different incidents? I am. Well, another issue I wanted to discuss was the number symbolism. And you know how interested I am in biblical numerology because I believe numbers are significant in the Bible. And uh, so I wanted to talk about why did Christ choose 70 disciples? Some have suggested that as the 12 apostles that he chose, 12, were associated in number with the 12 tribes of Israel, so the 70 are associated with the 70 nations which are mentioned all the way back in talking about tens, all the way back in Genesis 10. Or, you know, we're given 70 nations that came from the, the sons of Noah. Now, so the point being made is that the gospel is to go into all the world. Jesus referred to himself, if you look ahead at Luke 10, 2. Are you in Acts or did you go back to Luke? Go back to Luke's 10, Luke 10, 2. The Lord referred to himself as the Lord of the harvest, and we all know that the harvest is found worldwide. And remember, now we would not know what I'm going to say next if we were not studying the Lord's life chronologically. If we were just going through the book of Luke... We would miss this. But because we're studying it chronologically, we know that the Lord, before he sent out the 70, had just been in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. He had healed the man born blind, and then he had given uh, not only the Light of the World sermon, but the Good Shepherd sermon, which is what we looked at right before Christmas. And in that sermon, which again, another 10, John chapter 10, he had stated that he had other sheep which were not of the fold of Israel who he needed to bring into his new fold, which would be, of course, what? The fold of the church. And those other sheep, we said, were Gentiles. 
They weren't Israel. They weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. So perhaps the number 70 was intended to symbolize the universality of the gospel message, which is for Jew and Gentile alike, right? And what we do notice in his commissioning statement to the 70 is that he does not say, as he had in his commissioning statement to the 12, he does not tell them to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's interesting, isn't it? That's very interesting. And this would, this would also make sense that the Holy Spirit chose Luke to be the one and only gospel writer to tell us about this sending of the 70. Because Luke was the only New Testament writer who wasn't a Jew, but was a Gentile. He was Greek, so it all fits together. It was a symbolic way of saying that Jesus wanted the message of salvation in him to spread to all the Gentile nations of the world. And in Perea, there were a lot of Gentiles. Furthermore, the number 70 was significant to the Jews because Moses, remember, had appointed 70 elders to help him govern the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant. You can read about that in Numbers 11. And this was, in fact, why there were 70 men in the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is that religious council that ruled over Israel, made up of scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests. That's why there were 70, because Moses had chosen 70. So the Lord, you see, was replacing the old leaders of the nation of Israel with his own men, the true sheep who had willingly followed the true shepherd out of the old fold of the law and Judaism and into the new fold of grace and Christianity, which was also what we talked about in the Good Shepherd sermon. So it would be to these 12 apostles and 70 disciples that the church of the future would look for her guidance. And I think all of that is very interesting. Now let's look at the first part of our outline called the commission. These are his words to these 70 men and we look and we find them in Luke 10 verses 1 to 11. It says, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Notice that, whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Interesting, he had just told them that they were sheep. And and, uh, what shepherd sends lambs, his little lambs, out into the wolf den? Well, the good shepherd does because he knows he'll be there to protect them. All right, and he says, Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you. Here's what you want to highlight, all you mothers. Eat such things as are set before you. That is a wonderful verse for you to teach your children to memorize. 
eat. It's very biblical. You tell your children. Next time they don't want to clean their plates, it's biblical to clean your plate. Eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. What is their message to be? That of peace and that of the coming kingdom. Why was the kingdom of God near unto them? Because the king was coming right behind. All right, it says, verse 10, But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Okay, we will stop right there for now. As with the commissioning of the twelve back in Matthew 10, the Lord sent the seventy out how? In trios and quartets and two by two, just like the animals into the ark. He sent them out in pairs. And that was for mutual encouragement. It was for safety purposes. And, of course, to supply the necessary witness. The law demanded at least two or three witnesses, right? And here's a verse, another reason for why two is better than one. Because, and this is a verse I always think young single women love this verse. It's found in Ecclesiastes 4 9. And it says exactly what I just said two is better than one. I keep writing that verse to my son all the time. <laughs> love mom, Ecclesiastes 4 9. <laughs> hint, hint. All right, the Lord, as always, saw the tremendous need. He saw yet another field ready unto, ripe unto harvest, as he had. It's interesting to me that the Lord used the word harvest three times in the Gospels. The first time, do you remember, was in John chapter 4, when he saw the people of the village of Sychar in Samaria coming out, because a woman at the well had gone and fetched the whole city, and they were coming out, and he said, you know, look, and the, the field is white unto harvest. That's the first time he used the word harvest, and it was a regard into, a re, with regard to Samaritans. All right, the second time he used the word harvest is in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, and that was up in Galilee. And now here we find the third time. I'll get back to this subject in just a minute. According to Luke 10.1, the Lord sent forth 70 men as forerunners, you know, to prepare the people for his coming. It reminds me of like 70 John the Baptists. They're going out saying the kingdom of God is nigh, you know, at hand, preparing the way because he said that he he was coming. How does it how does it work? Worded? Um, it says that um, they were to be prepared to go before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. So he was going to uh, follow up and come behind them. All right. So it's interesting that the Lord, how does the Lord, what does he see as a harvest field? Well, he sees the harvest field um, with, for, with people that were, are hated. You know, he saw the harvest field of Samaritans. Those people were really hated by the Jews, weren't they? Because they thought of them as, well, they were half-breeds. And, they, and so the Jews, meaning the religious rulers of Israel, really hated the Samaritans, and consequently a lot of the common Jews also hated them. And then the Galileans um, were looked on with a lot of contempt by the Jews because basically they saw Galileans as uneducated, common 
fishermen type of people who they said were cursed because because they were willing to live among Gentiles. And so they they despised the Galileans. They had contempt. They hated the Samaritans. They despised the Galileans. But you know what they thought of Pereans, where he was sending these 70? They really were very indifferent toward them. They were indifferent toward the people of Perea. In fact, it was the most neglected area of all as far as the religious ministry that came out of Jerusalem was concerned. They didn't even, the Jews didn't even bother really going over there to minister to those people at all. So, you see, the Lord sees a harvest field as those who are, you know, Primarily those who are hated, those who are despised, and those who are neglected. So he was, at the end of his ministry, he's intensifying his efforts to reach the unreached. These were places that he intended to visit before his crucifixion. There was a great harvest of precious souls to be reached for the kingdom of God. And the laborers were what? Few. Few. You notice the Lord says that we are to pray. I need to be more conscious of praying for more laborers in his harvest field. But he he asks us to pray for laborers, not spectators. We certainly have enough Christian spectators, don't we? People who just go to church, sit in a pew, and spectate. (laughs) They want to be... (laughs) It's like my husband's a deacon now. I say, what do deacons do? They deke. (laughs) He has a deking meeting. But there's a lot of people who just go to church sort of to be entertained. Don't they? I mean, we don't need more spectators. We need more laborers. So the Lord told his 70 that they were to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth more laborers out into the harvest. That was the very first duty of his disciples. If you're going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, our first duty is that we pray. And we are to pray for more laborers. And then notice... Um, that he was sending them into an antagonistic world, wasn't he? He was sending them as lambs out into the wolf den. You know, when we leave here, that's literally what we're doing. We're going out into the wolf den because Satan is the, the prince of this world. He is the god of this world right now. But he said, look at the verbs. The verb used in verse 2 is pray. First pray, and then what's the verb used in verse 3? Go. First pray and then go. Don't pray unless in your own heart you yourself are willing to go. We all need to be willing to go. Now, some of us may not be able to go, but we need to be willing to go. Maybe our physical health is such that we can't go. Maybe our husband hasn't been called, so we can't go. But you know what every one of us can do? We can bloom where we're planted. We can, we're all to be missionaries in our own little circles of influence, in our own communities. So we're all really to be missionaries. Now, the authority in going is found in the Lord's words, Behold, I send you. And the emphasis is on the word I. You see, these men could go as lambs out into the wolf den because they could take comfort in the fact that they were going in his authority. They were going in obedience to his command, and they were going under his authority. Yes, they would be as lambs invading the uh, enemy territory of the wolves. And how many lambs are willing to do that? Do you, do you ever see a lamb going full force, running into a wolf down, den? <laughs> no, but, but uh, that's what we're called to do. 
and we can take confidence in the fact that the Lord will protect us. And even if we get gobbled up by the wolves, we're still victorious because we're still delivered. We're still overcomers. You know who an overcomer is? Who is an overcomer according to 1 John um, 5, 5? Um, an overcomer is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John 5, 5. Um, we are all overcomers. Even if this world martyrs us, we're overcomers because we're immediately delivered. And why are we overcomers? Because he overcame for us. He, did the, he won the victory for us over death and sin. So the Christian laborer must trust his Lord for his protection. And notice that the spirit of the Christian laborer is given to us by the Lord in referring to his disciples as lambs. Now, he didn't say, um, I'm sending you out as lions into the wolf den, or I'm sending you out as bears into the wolf den, did he? Now, I think of Allah, um, of course, he's a false god, but how does he send out his laborers just like that? As lions and bears and devour everyone who doesn't agree with you. But that is not the Christian's commission. We are to be as lambs going out into the, into the wolf den. And there is hardly, and we talked about this last time, but there is hardly any creature that I can think of, and I was searching my mind to think of another creature who is more gentle and more harmless and more meek, more non-terroristic. I make up words. Uh, less non-combative as a lamb. Can you think of a creature that God has made that's, you know, that you think more, when you think of meek and harmless than a lamb? Um, that's why Jesus, I guess, is called the Lamb of God. And, and um, you know, we're smitten on one side of our face, we're to turn the other, etc. And lambs also are so utterly dependent upon who? The good shepherd. They're really totally dependent on the shepherd for their protection and their provision. So this tells us a lot about the spirit of the Christian, how we're to be meek and humble and, and peacemakers, etc. Well, in Luke ten four, the Lord gave his 70 a twofold charge. First of all, as I just mentioned about lambs, they were to trust God for their needs. Now, uh, he, says, he says to them, they, are not to, they were not to carry a purse, and, and don't you think that's a good thing? I'm glad the Lord t told his men not to carry purses because there's just something about a man carrying a purse that, you know, just doesn't set right with me. <laughs> so I'm so glad he told them not to carry purses, nor scripts. And scrip is what you put um, food in, little pieces of bread, nor shoes. And that's, of course, why he sent men and not women. We could never go without our shoes. <laughs> All right, so first of all, he tells them that they are to trust God for their needs. Second of all, they are to sense the urgency of the hour. He says, salute no man by the way. They were not to carry a money bag. They were not to carry a traveler's bag, a script, nor were they to have a second pair of shoes. Oh, dear me, oh, my. Now, they could be shod with sandals, and that is given to us in Mark 6, 9. They could be shod with sandals. They could wear sandals, but what he's saying is don't take with you not only the sandals on your feet, but a second pair of shoes. And shoes were different than sandals. Shoes were more expensive because they covered the whole foot. 
you know, there was leather over the whole foot, not like a sandal, your toes stick out and everything. <clears throat> and they were, um, generally, shoes were worn by the, the, the more wealthy and the higher social class people back in that day. So he says, you know, don't take shoes, just wear your sandals. That's similar to when he told the apostles not to take two coats with them. You know, he didn't want them. They were on an important mission, and they didn't need the extra baggage. You know, like when you go in the airport and you got all this luggage to carry. They didn't need all that. They were to travel as light as they possibly could. And their poverty really was to serve as a great witness because it would identify them with the common people who they were going to witness to. And it would also serve to demonstrate their dependence on the one who sent them, their dependence on the Lord for their provisions and for their protection. Now, in telling them to not salute, or to that really means, you know, you know, not this, but it means not to greet anybody on the way as they're going. What the, That sounds kind of cruel, but what the Lord was really telling them there was not that, that, that they were to spend as much time as possible in ministry. You know, the time was getting really short. And so they needed to focus on their ministry, going from city to town and to house to house, etc., and as much time in prayer as possible, and not to waste their time by stopping along the way to, to greet people. Now, in the Eastern culture, the greetings are very long and drawn out. It was a big waste of time because, you know, you, know, you meet somebody along the road and you'd have to say, oh, peace be unto you and to your house, and if your mother is still alive, may she live to be 120 years old, and I pray that the weather is good where you come from. I mean, these long, elaborate greetings. So it was just, you know, like basically a big waste of time. Just get on about the business. You know, they were to be aware of the urgency of the hour and uh, to redeem their time wisely. Did Jesus himself sense this urgency all during his ministry? Remember what he had just said in, in John chapter 9, verse 4? He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. He knew he had to get accomplished what he needed to get accomplished, and there was no, you know, not a lot of little tea parties along the way. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, says to us in Ephesians, he says, uh, Brethren, the time is short. 1 Corinthians 7.29. And Ephesians 5.16, it says, We are to redeem the time because the days are evil. And it says in Psalm 90.12, Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Do you feel? I hope you sense that. We never know if we even have tomorrow. I want to get as much done for the Lord in the time that I know I have. Well, I never know. I mean, I could, like last time, I could just disappear behind the pulpit and be gone. But, you know, I want to redeem my time wisely. I want to live it as much as possible for him. So along the way, there may not be a lot of tea parties. And, you know, we have to do some basic things just so people don't think we're totally social outcasts. But we need to be serious about living for the Lord and serving him and being laborers for him, don't we? And other people may not always understand that. You know, Catherine, why can't you go to lunch more often? Why can't you do this and that? Well, I've got to do what i got to do. I've got a goal set before me. I've set my face like Flint to accomplish it because I don't know, especially over Christmas. I didn't know I was going to make it. Boy, it feels good to be healthy again. Mm, when you hurt, doesn't it feel, don't you? Man, it really makes you appreciate your health. Anyway, in verses 5 and 6, the Lord told his 70 that their message was to be one of peace. The peace with God, 
which is only possible by faith in his son, and then the peace of God that then dwells within a believer, the peace of God that we can have possible because of him dwelling within us, and then the peace that we are to have between men, you know, with one another. Now, if a son of peace dwelled in the house, you know, they go to a door and knock on the door, if, if a son of peace dwelled in that house, maybe it was the father, maybe it was one of the sons, I don't know. If somebody in that house was a peacemaker, you know, had their heart set toward godly things, then they were to um, continue to give the message of peace to that household. But if there was no son of peace in that household, then the the message of peace would not be accepted, so they were to to leave to go away you see the disciple was not to this is interesting he was not to force the message of peace on anyone who was not willing to receive it now the next instruction from the lord to the 70 is found in verse 7 and it had to do with accepting hospitality and compensation for their labor it says the laborer is worthy of his hire And this truth is reiterated several times in the New Testament epistles. You don't muzzle the ox that feeds you. You know, we are to take care of our missionaries and our evangelists and our pastors, are we not? We, you know, the laborer is worthy of his hire. But he's not to seek the luxuries and the, and the greeds. The 70 disciples and other ministers of the gospel, in, in, you know, in the future, because this could go into the future too. He's talking to these 70, but he's also talking to future uh, ministers of the gospel. They, they were not to... Um, They were not to be self-conscious or embarrassed in receiving payment for their labors if somebody gave them a little, you know, love offering. Or uh, they weren't to feel embarrassed about people putting them up for the night, you know, letting them sleep in their home. But they weren't to seek excess. You know, they weren't to, to go to one house and say, well, this doesn't look quite comfortable enough for me to spend the night. I think I'll go to the house down the street. Looks bigger, looks more comfortable. They weren't to go from house to house and person to person seeking more and more of the comforts and the better things of life. Their purpose was to seek the, to meet the needs of others, not to secure for themselves the the things of this world. Now, in verses 8 and 9, the Lord gave three excellent pieces of advice to his uh, messengers and subsequently to all future disciples and missionaries and followers of himself. They were to identify. This just makes common sense. They were to identify with the people that they went to reach. Remember, Paul said, I become all things to all people. If, if you're going to go out among people to win them for the Lord, you need to identify with those people. And in teaching this principle of identification, Jesus used the most basic thing to stress his point. What is basic among all peoples? Food. We all need to eat food, physical food. So he uses as his illustration food. He says they were to eat such things as were set before them. Servants of the Lord Jesus Christ are to avoid the appearance of being fickle about food. Did you hear that? 
were to avoid the appearance of being fickle about food. Now, I know there's exceptions, like with poor Belva, who's allergic to chocolate. But, um, you know, we're to be very sensitive. If somebody puts a plate of food in front of us, and we're ambassadors for the Christ, and we turn up our nose and say, oh, I hate that. I'm not going to eat that. You know, it can greatly offend people. Very much so. Very much so. And uh, this would be particularly important, you know, in other countries. I know when I went to, I've told you this story before, but when I went to look at my roots in Greece, and I went to that little village up in the mountains, and I, I went to v- visit some of my relatives who had known my grandmother, and they had a little mud house with a dirt floor, and they put before me, I sat down at the table, and they put before me, and I'm not exaggerating, I've never seen a plate more heaping with food, this big pile of horta. Now, you know what horta is? It's cooked dandelion weeds. It was nothing but huerta, green pile of dandelion weeds. And I had been told, you know, before I go, that you're to refuse the food three times before you then eat it. That's polite. But when I was refusing, I was really meaning it. <laughs> um, but And then I had also, my father really, he didn't know this verse, eat such things as are set before you, but he sure did know it. <laughs> he didn't know it was in the Bible, but he, he made sure we cleaned our plates. We were taught to always clean our plates. So I knew I needed to clean my plate if I was going to be polite. So I ate all that horta, and it was the bitterest, awfulest thing I had ever eaten. And I ate it all. And you see, people told me, forgot to tell me, you refuse the food three times. They remembered to tell me that, but they didn't tell me that if you clean your plate, they really think you like it, and they'll give you more. (laughs) So I had another heaping pile of horta put in front of me. And I ate it. And when I left that house, oh my goodness, I have never retched like that in my life. I just retched and retched and retched. But I was obedient to this verse. You know? I didn't offend those people. They didn't see me retching on the side of the road. I hope they didn't. Servants of Christ are to avoid the appearance of being fickle. God's messengers are to change their customs and their habits and their preferences in order to reach people. I know when my son was on a short-term mission trip over in the Philippines, the Filipinos told all those young people on that trip that if they were going to be one of them, if they were going to identify with them as, as Filipinos, then they needed to eat a balut. Now, do you know what a balut is, anybody? Yes, because it's a, a duckling right before it's hatched. And therefore, that means, and they think of this as a delicacy. Duckling has got bones and feathers in the whole nine yards. And of course, the only one to eat the balut was my son. (laughs) I taught him well. He'll eat no matter what is put in front of him. That boy will eat it. When he was in Papua New Guinea, he ate sea worms. You know, they think that's a delicacy. And just not too long ago, did I tell you when he was in Peru a couple months ago? He ate guinea pig. Now, we used to have a guinea pig as a pet. It was a long-haired guinea pig named Butterscotch. I, but my, my son ate it. So he's really good at this, you know, adapting himself to the culture of the people. But they were to learn for Christ's sake to accommodate and adapt themselves to those they were trying to reach so that the people would see that they accepted them and received them. Now remember that these 70 men, these disciples were all very, very likely Jewish. 
I would say, yeah, that they all were definitely Jewish. Now, there might have been an exception, but I doubt it. I suppose they were all Jewish. So think about this. The Lord's command to them right here to eat whatsoever was placed before them must have been shocking to them. Because this was really a forerunner of Acts 10.15, where, remember, Peter was told, um, in a, was it in a, a, dream, a vision? He was told that what God has cleansed, call not common. Um, he was told, in other words, there's not going to be any difference anymore, Peter, between clean food and unclean food. Well, this, this, Jesus told these men that before Acts. And, and so this must have been shocking to them, that they were to eat whatever was put in front of them. They were not to find fault with any food, but to eat it, whether it was clean or not clean. And as I said, in Perea, there were Gentiles. So this was amazing. And in this, they were setting themselves apart from the Pharisees, who were known for their disdain of the food of the common people. They wouldn't even sit with common people, much less eat their food. And, of course, they had a total abhorrence for the food of Gentile people. So this was really different here. Well, moving along, and try, I'm trying to cover this quickly, and I may not make it, but the, the Lord then imparted to these men his power to be able to minister to the people's physical needs. That's in verse 19. They were to be an extension of his own ministry. You know, he also went around healing the sick so that his message, which was the most important thing, was confirmed by his miracles. Their primary concern was to be their message, which Jesus told them was that of peace, and that the kingdom was at hand. And that's because the king was coming up behind them. They were forerunners of the king. So their message was to be their primary concern, but their miracles that they could perform in healing the sick and also casting out demons. We know it doesn't say that here, but we know later on in the text that they also, if you look at verse 17, that they also cast out demons. That was to confirm their message. All right, so they would sort of be like 70 John the Baptists. Think about it. Wasn't John the Baptist one who went to prepare the way before the coming of the king? And he was in the same area when he was baptizing at the end of his ministry. He was in this Transjordan area near Perea. So it's kind of interesting. It was like 70 John the Baptists going out and proclaiming the message that the kingdom of heaven was nigh at hand because the king was coming right behind. Except John never performed any miracles. These guys were to go around healing. And don't you know that 70 men, you know, 35 pairs of men would surely have an impact on, on the villages of the Transjordan and the Perean area, you know, and could hardly fail to draw attention to the Lord. These guys going about, you know, everybody get word. Did you know there was two men that came to our town and they were able to cleanse the lepers, heal the sick, make the blind see? I don't know if they did that, but whatever they could do, word would get around. These guys are all over the place. And this would, you know, increase the anticipation for the one they said was coming behind them 
who was going to personally visit them very soon. We know within the next few months. So these messengers of peace who had divinely given gifts of healing in order to authenticate their kingdom message to a neglected people were to be like Joshua's army. First, they were to proclaim peace to the cities that they were to to battle. And this was a spiritual battle. They were lambs going among the wolves. But, first of all, they were to proclaim peace. But if a city rejected their offer of peace, then it had chosen its own judgment. And the visiting pair of disciples were to go out to the street of that city and they were to wipe off the dust of that city from their sandals, not their shoes, from their sandals as a testimony against that city. You see, this was a witness along with the words that Jesus told them to say in verse 11. You can look at them. I won't read them. But this was a witness that God was doing just what they really wanted. You know, he was leaving them alone. They didn't want his message of peace. They didn't want his proclamation of the kingdom message. So so he was leaving them alone to walk in the way that they desired. The reason for God's judgment was that they had rejected God's kingdom, which had come nigh unto them. The opportunity had been there. You know, the opportunity was right at their door. But what did they do? They shut that door. And what a person does with his or her opportunities is their responsibility. And God holds them accountable for that. Well, the Lord then went on in verses 12 to 15 to repeat to these 70 disciples words that he had also spoken earlier to his 12 apostles. And he spoke words regarding the divine judgment of the very privileged cities of Galilee. What were those cities? Chorazin, Bethsaida, and most of all, Capernaum, where Jesus had set up his whole headquarters for his Galilean ministry. I'm just going to read those verses to you because we have discussed them on two other occasions in our Life of Christ study, and if you want to do a further study, you can go back to one of those. I think it was sixty in the 60s somewhere when we talked about the ordination sermon, but let's just read those verses, and as we do, I'll say a word or two, and then we'll move on to the third section of our outline. All right, let's look at verses 12 to 16. Jesus said, But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. And those were Philistine pagan villages that did not have a witness for Christ, like these very privileged Galilean cities. He says it will be more tolerable for those cities at the judgment than for you. You know what that tells us? That there are degrees of punishment in hell because it will be more tolerable doesn't that show degrees there will be degrees of punishment in hell some will be held more accountable than others i mean it'll all be horrible but there'll be different degrees of punishment anyway it says verse 15 and thou capernaum which art exalted to heaven shall be thrust down to hell all right, I, as I said, I'm not going to discuss that very much other than what it basically tells us is that greater privilege brings greater responsibility. 
All right, now the last thing that the Lord spoke in his commissioning statement to the 70 before he sent them out is found in verse 16. And let me read that verse. He said, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Who is the one who sent Christ? God. This verse tells us of the amazing identity between the messenger, the laborer for the Lord, and the Lord himself. The position and the message of the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is the highest value. That's the highest value message that there is because his message represents uh, Christ himself. It's like Christ himself speaking. And Christ himself, when he speaks, is like who speaking? The one who sent him, God. So the messenger was to be given the most serious hearing possible. People, if they came, if came to their door, they, they should have given that the most serious, you know, come on in, let me definitely hear what you have to say. Because it was counted as the Lord himself speaking. And therefore, a rejection of the messenger was the most serious offense. Because in God's eyes, it was seen as the rejection of his son, and therefore, the rejection of himself. Because he's the one who sent his son into this world to give the message about salvation. So, and this is identical in meaning to what the Lord had also said to the twelve when he sent them out. He had said to them, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Well, after the Lord's words to the seventy of Luke 10, verses 1 to 16. That's his commission to them. That's all he said to them. Then he sent them out in pairs. And they went out and they did exactly as as he had assigned them to do. Now we do not know how long they were gone. Maybe a few weeks. Maybe a month. I don't know exactly how long they were gone. But when they returned to some pre-specified place of rendezvous at some predetermined time, you know, he said he probably told them before, you know, we're going to meet here on such and such a date. When they finally were finished and they came back, the 70 were very, very excited about the presence of God's power that had been evident in their labors for him. And that's good. It's good that they came back and they were very excited. Yet the Lord cautioned them about something very important that that's what I want to look at in verses 17 to 20, the caution. We're going to try to move really, really quick. Verse 17, it says, And the seventy returned again with joy. And that word joy means great rejoicing. It's the Greek word chara. Great joy. If you were Greek, Joy Taylor, your name would be chara. So practice that. (laughs) And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They're all excited about having been able to cast out demons. And he, Jesus, said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Do you know what that is? That's a declaration of his deity. And then verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I don't recommend that, ladies. Uh, Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. All right, the caution. 
find that they return, they're full of gladness. But the only words that the 70 said that are recorded for us are, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, they did give Christ the credit for the power to cast out demons. They said, you know, we're able to do this in thy name. But they were very excited about having power over Satan's realm. Now, we can identify, I mean, I'd be excited if I was able to go out and cast out a demon from a person and see that person, you know, released. But um, it says something to us, don't you think, that these are the only recorded words from them and not something like this? Wouldn't it have been nicer if on their return they said, Lord, there was a great spiritual harvest of souls for thy kingdom, and we're so happy. Don't you think that might have been better? then, you know, we were able to cast out demons in your name. You see, we know that there was a great soul of harvest because this is what the Lord himself rejoices over in verse 21, which I hope we get to because that's very exciting. And this is what he thanked his heavenly father for in prayer, was for the success of the ministry of the 70. Not that they could cast out demons, but that people were brought into the kingdom. However, it appears from what Luke was inspired to share with us that the 70 were more thrilled by the response of demons to their God-given powers than they were by the response of the people to their message. So this is what prompted the Lord's words of caution to them in verses 18 to 20. You see, the Lord can read human hearts like an open book, can't he? And he saw a potential danger going on here by the fact that these men were so joyful over their victory. He knows how man can so easily be tempted with pride. And that was his concern in saying, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Uh, He was there when Satan fell. Satan was then called Lucifer, wasn't he? And um, he was there when Satan pronounced his rebellious thoughts and words against God, when Lucifer said, you know, I will be like the Most High God. And, of course, his blasphemy immediately called, caused his expulsion from heaven. He was kicked out of heaven, along with one-third of the angels who decided to join him in his rebellion against God. Jesus had been there and had witnessed that fall of Satan. Actually, technically, Jesus was the one who cast him out of heaven, wasn't he? Because Jesus is one with God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit cast Satan out. Um, So he himself was responsible for uh, Lucifer's fall. So it's no wonder, if you think about that, it's no wonder that those demons who were confronted by the divine authority of Jesus' name through these 70 disciples, no wonder they were totally helpless but to do anything but obey. You know, Jesus gave these men the power to do it, and they spoke in Jesus' name, and therefore the demons had to, to obey. They had to leave those who they victimized. So, And it's no, um, no wonder that because he had given them the power to do so, they could tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing would by any means hurt them. Now, I don't recommend this. This is not to be taken literally. This is speaking of the spiritual realm, and maybe in their case, this is special, that he did protect them as they were going through the Judean wilderness or over in Perea from serpent bites and scorpion. I mean, we know he did with the Apostle Paul, right? On the Isle of Malta. 
Um, but, you know, there are Christians who take this literally and they, they're called snake handlers. I, you know, that's tempting God. You don't do that. Don't be like little Zachary Johnson and go out there. <laughs> and, but now he's immune, I hope. I hope. You know, Holly's son was bit three times by a copperhead. I've been bitten by a copperhead, so I guess I can go into the snake handling thing if I want to, but that's not... <laughs> mine was a dry bite, I guess, but um, that's not what he's talking about here. But in there, you know, God will, until, until our time is up, God will protect his servant, no matter what the threat, you know, rather, whether a shipwreck or what the injury, even if a snake bite. If, if he's not through with you... You're going you're gonna to survive. The life of a true believer is in God's hands every moment of his life. All right, what the 70 men should have been rejoicing about, Jesus says, was not that they received divine privileges and power to cast out demons. What should they have been rejoicing about in their hearts? That they, Look at verse 20. That their names were written where? In heaven. They should have been rejoicing about the fact that their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, salvation is the real issue for rejoicing, isn't it? You know, even when you're sick and down and you feel miserable, and you, in your heart you can still rejoice because you know you have salvation. It is the most wonderful, comforting, rejoicing thing there is in life. You know, I hope you haven't lost the joy of your salvation. Nothing can happen to us that can remove that joy. The greatest privilege that we have is to be able to know with confidence that our sins have been forgiven and that heaven is our final destination. Right? That's what we should rejoice in. Not that we might have a little power to do that, this or that, or handle snakes or cast out demons. Or right. It's worth mentioning that the Greek verb for written in verse 20 is given in the perfect tense. This is, this is good. This is important. Write this down. So that what it really means is rejoice in that your name stands written. The names of the 70, even though we don't know the names of 68 of those guys, yet their names stand written in heaven. You know what that is? That's a statement of assurance. They, those names, are once they're inscribed in the book of life, they stand written forever and forever by the Lord's own decree. And that is really something to rejoice about. I sure would hate to think I could lose my salvation because I would probably lose it every day. All right, the unconcealment. We're right at, um, let me just tell you about the only time in Scripture it says Jesus rejoiced, and then I'll let you go and you can read the rest of the lesson in your book, okay? But let's look at verses 21 to 24, because it's the only time in Scripture that it says that Jesus rejoiced. We know he wept, and he sweat drops of blood, and he grieved at, uh, at the widow of Nain's son's funeral, but here he rejoiced in the Spirit. Look at verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said this is the fifth recorded prayer in our life of Christ study now even though we know Jesus prayed all the time this is the fifth recorded specific prayer he says I thank thee O father Lord of heaven and earth that thou has hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes even so father for so it seemed good in thy sight all things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. 
And then he turned unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. All right, this is the only place, Luke ten twenty one. This is a trivia question to ask somebody, your children, your husband, whoever. Ask them, where is the only place in Scripture that it says Jesus rejoiced? And here it is, Luke ten twenty one. It means, the Greek word is it means he was happy. He was he was full of joy, chara, and exaltation. Because there were so many witnesses going out in his name, just think about this. Seventy witnesses saturating the area of Perea, as opposed to twelve that he had sent out last time. Because of that. This may well have been the greatest harvest of souls yet in the whole in the whole of the Lord's ministry. Now we know that the entire Samaritan village of Sychar came to know the Lord through the witness of the Samaritan woman out at the well. Remember back in John chapter 4, but Samar- there were very few Samaritans. And their villages were very small. So there was only a small little populated village that came to know him. And we know that all of his time up in Galilee, everybody liked Jesus because of all the wonderful things he did for them. He was very well liked up in Galilee. But by and large, the people did not submit their hearts to him, did they? That's why he said, woe unto you. So here he's rejoicing in his spirit only time because I think that this was the greatest, this was the most, the biggest (laughs) harvest of souls that he had experienced in his earthly lifetime. There were many in that area, that neglected area. And maybe John the Baptist was the one who primed the pump because he had been there. But there were many who heard the voice of the good shepherd when he came to them. You know, they were prepared by John the Baptist and they were prepared by these 70. And when he came to town, there was a great harvest of souls. Many of them even maybe came through the witness of the 70 before he got there. And you know what makes Jesus happy? What more than anything? Obeying the will of his father. And why did the Lord send him? And why did God send him here? That he might seek and save that which was lost. The thing that makes Jesus rejoice in his spirit is the redemption of souls. That, what was it that helped him to endure the shame and the suffering of the cross? What kept him up there? It was for the joy that was set before him. And you know what the joy that was set before him was? He, he could see down the corridors of history all the millions and millions of people who would come to saving faith in him because of what he was doing up there. And that joy kept him on the cross, the joy that was set before him. That's what makes Jesus happy. You want to make Jesus happy? Win, win souls into his kingdom.